0: right welcome to reverb everybody my name is alex helberg and i am joined today by my co-hosts and co-producers calvin pollock and sophie wadzik and today we are very thrilled to be joined by a phd in epidemiology from the university of pittsburgh dr abby cardis abby thank you so much for being with us
1: so much for having me
0: of course So before we get started here, I was wondering if you could maybe just give us a brief snapshot of your work in epidemiology and public health. What got you interested in this field, and what are some of the kinds of research that you've worked on up to this point?
1: Sure. So my undergrad was actually in biology, and I've been kind of like very politically active on you know like the the left i think the meaning of that term has changed a lot since like over the course of my life but i've been pretty pretty politically active since i was like in high school maybe an adolescent and um i graduated from undergrad kind of into the recession worked in crappy jobs for a number of years and then kind of figured out that like public health seems like a pretty cool synthesis of you know sciencey stuff and you know biology and kind of the more political questions that I was interested in or engaging in, I guess, extracurricularly. So um, I got my master's and I recently finished my PhD and all of my work in epidemiology has been in like perinatal epidemiology. So I study like what happens around like pregnancy, labor and delivery, I wrote my master's thesis about a rare birth defect in Texas. I've done some work in, I guess you would say like environmental reproductive epidemiology about exposure to endocrine disrupting chemicals and how that impacts the fetal placental hormonal environment. And then, you know, the health of like neonates and children later on. And then my dissertation was about severe maternal morbidity and mortality, um, which is like a big issue in the U S right now. And has some interesting, there are some interesting implications in that work about kind of like public health infrastructure and like data infrastructure in the U.S. that are also like kind of applicable to what's going on with COVID. So I'm like a, I would call myself a perinatal epidemiologist. I'm not an infectious disease specialist. I'm not someone who's like a specialist in healthy buildings or anything, but I do have epidemiological training. So that's my, that's my background.
0: Great. Yeah. Thank you so much.
2: Yeah. Abby, thanks so much for being here. First question that I kind of wanted to get at and sorry if this is extremely broad and maybe kind of dark but uh, I just wanted to get your like as an epidemiologist your overall take on where things are with the COVID pandemic right now because and I mean you know feel free to hold some things back because we have other (laughs) questions we want to ask you that all relate to this but just like at a high level where do you see things in terms of the progression of the pandemic and you know, where we've been and where we might be going in the near future?
1: So I think where we are right now is that, thankfully, cases and other indicators, you know, like deaths and hospitalizations seem to be trending down. That's good. I would guess that there are probably a lot of different reasons for why that is. But I also think it's important not to get complacent because these things are trending down, you know, we're still at higher levels of transmission, you know, of hospitalization and of death than we were at like the peak of either of the previous two surges that we've seen in the US. And so, you know, I think it's it's a good thing like cases are trending down, the vaccine rollout is garbage, you know, as every component of the response to COVID has been, so there's like reason to be kind of cautiously optimistic. But at the same time, I don't think we should get complacent. And I really don't think like we've learned anything from the past year. So I'm like maybe not optimistic that things are just going to continue to trend in a positive direction without us like making some pretty major changes that I think we're unlikely to make. So it's getting better. It's still bad. It could get worse.
2: It's kind of how kind of how everything is right now. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah. no,
0: actually, I I really appreciate that that way of looking at uh, the way that things are right now because I think it is very easy to you know when a public narrative is set out that we are you know seeing less deaths, we're seeing less hospitalizations, there is that tendency to get complacent or to attribute causality to something like for example the recent election <laughs> that may have been you know a yeah a causal factor within that. So I think we wanted to start out our conversation about the sort of public. narrative narratives surrounding COVID and around different policies for that, just by kind of talking at a general level about the difference between the rhetoric of the newly elected President Joe Biden and Donald Trump, his rhetoric for the uh, the final year of his presidency leading up to coronavirus. I guess, what major differences do you see in the way that these two presidents have approached a pandemic policy?
1: So I think one thing that I have kind of noticed is that at least in the beginning, when it seemed plausible that the pandemic was going to like affect everyone in the United States equally. I feel like the Trump administration was using a lot of kind of collective rhetoric and like, you know, these quite violent and I think like problematic metaphors about, you know, war and battle and like, you know we're gonna defeat COVID. I think that kind of fell apart, like later on in the spring summer and fall when like i mean it became totally clear that you know covid is like an occupational disease as much as anything else right that it's not affecting everyone equally that everyone is not equally at risk and the trump administration just kind of fell out and like i never even the the very like belligerent collectivist rhetoric of the trump administration was never real right like he like they never gave a shit they were never going to yes. do anything right like herd immunity through infection was the strategy long before it was like officially adopted by the Trump administration in the fall. But I think it's kind of an interesting contrast to Biden's rhetoric because Biden's rhetoric is very like technocratic, which I appreciate. Right. Like because I am a scientist and like it is really good that we have a president who like doesn't advocate for drinking bleach. Um, <laughs>
0: You know, Just like, bare, I mean, bare minimum, pretty low bar, though, honestly,
3: yeah. like That's anything, low
1: would have bar, been. but can't be overstated how good that is that, like, the, the presidential administration is like, no germs are, are real.
2: <laughs> no, yeah. I mean, I have a question about that. Do you believe that that has like a large scale effect on I mean, what, like, what effect do you attribute Trump's outright denial of the virus and his not modeling masking for months like telling people to drink bleach like do you think that that stuff like in the early part of the pandemic made an appreciable difference and like how much better might things have been under like a disappointing yet competent neoliberal executive
1: I mean I I think it's hard to quantify but I think it definitely made things worse because it was clear I mean Trump you know getting up at a press briefing and telling people to drink bleach and, you know, that you can just irradiate your body with UV light or whatever, like crazy shit that he said. I think all that stuff is kind of like an epiphenomenon of like what was really going on, which was that like all of that stuff was Trump's, that was like, that was it. That was like all the Trump administration was doing basically, except for, I don't know, like some very, very minor and some very like fragmented and uncoordinated, you know, like public-private partnership type responses to COVID. So I think that stuff was definitely harmful, but it was like layered on top of like total state like intentional state failure in managing the pandemic. So I think it's like hard to say how much the additional like antics of like Trump himself contributed to things being bad because his like policy approach, like there was no way that, you know, we were ever gonna be successful doing what his administration did. But I think it's it's like kind of interesting because Biden's rhetoric, it's very like technocratic and it really appeals to, and I mean, I'm not a, like a rhetorician so you can tell me if, I'm, if I've got this wrong, but like, I feel like Biden's rhetoric is really appealing to this idea of like continuity. You know, like Trump was an aberration. The adults are back in charge. We've got really competent people on top of this now. They went to really good schools. They know what they're doing and like, it's fine. Which like, I don't necessarily have a problem with that. But like, I do think that rhetorically, this kind of thing, there's this like narrative, (laughs) my friend, colleague, Justin Feldman, who like wrote a piece in Jacobin kind of about this, but like he calls it the personal responsibility theory of disease. And like this kind of took off, I feel like in the summer, and the Biden administration has really, really doubled down on it. So like in the spring, it was like, we knew nothing about COVID, we knew nothing about what was going to happen. And it was like, okay, well, we need like, strong, you know, like federal, you know, we need like governmental action, collective action to close things down. But like at some point over the summer and into the fall, that became like just wear your mask, wash your hands. You know, you had that like awful quotation from Cuomo that was like same thing with eating cheese. Like if you didn't eat the cheesecake, like you wouldn't have diabetes. Like it's the same thing. It's like, it's not, it's fucking not the same thing like at all. But I feel like the Biden administration is kind of doubling down on this like personal responsibility theory and just saying like, well, we've got really smart people in charge, but it's on you too. Like you just have to mask, you know, you have to distance, you have to hand wash, completely ignoring, right? Like the reality that a lot of people still have to go to work because our governments like won't close workplaces, right? And like, there's nothing that individual workers can really do to, manage like that risk to themselves but like the the rhetorical approach of the Biden administration is like okay well science is back in charge now like we've got it there's nothing we can do to change the trajectory of this pandemic so like you just need to hunker down and like double down on masking you know like we're going to we're going to mass produce masks and just try to vaccinate our way out of this and yeah i think that that forecloses the possibility of political action or collective action to do things that actually like would reduce covid transmission
2: yeah The point about, like, science being back in charge makes me think of, like, the Biden administration, I think they use—and this this has been kind of a high-level liberal rhetorical tactic in recent years—they use science as a positive ideograph, which is a term from rhetorical theory that basically these are these, like, broad terms like freedom and liberty that sort of— show that you are one of us by just using by, this term yeah just by
0: saying the word you invoke a whole set of ideological commitments right
2: right and and I think that's how they're using science they're trying to imply that simply by saying science is back in charge we're listening to the scientists scientists are Bay. Um, <laughs> that by saying all of that like we'll sort of assume or fill in the blanks of a plan that that maybe is not as fleshed out as it actually appears to be at, at first blush. And it makes me wonder like, how you feel about that as a scientist, like science being invoked as this kind of ideological term that's devoid of actual political action as though sort of science can solve what's really a fundamentally political problem.
1: Yeah, so I think it's really interesting because invoking science in this way performs ideological work, right? but the the ideological work that it's performing is appealing to this very persistent notion that science has no ideological content, right? And like has no social content and has no like referent in the social or political world, which is absurd, right? I mean, there are many examples just from COVID that like I'm kind of fixating on just because I'm interested in this, but like the production of science is like a social process right? Like with financial, right? Like social inputs from like a variety of different actors. And even, I think, you know, maybe we're gonna get into talking about like schools, you know, and like the flashpoint that is like the schools debate. But even when you read these studies about schools, right? Like you can see how even like the data themselves are socially produced, right? So we have like disinvested in our public health infrastructure, for 40 years, right? Like maybe longer. Our public health system is decimated, doesn't employ enough people. And then you read these studies about COVID transmission in schools or somewhere else and how they're quantifying the burden of COVID infection is using contact tracing that's performed by these local public health departments that maybe have like a handful of contact tracers, like a lot of places have kind of given up on contact tracing because the level of infection is so high that like the existing staff can't keep up. And so the social and political process of kind of like the neoliberal turn in the United States becomes like reflected in all of these studies that are like, well, we just asked some of these contact tracers and school staff if they had a lot of infections. And they said no, right? Like, which you can't rely on because contact tracing by like these local public health departments have variable resource capacities and things like that. And if you're not testing, especially children, even when they're not showing symptoms, right? Like you're going to severely undercount the number of infections that are out there. So the the repeated invocation of science, as if it's a neutral process, like sounds very silly to me as a scientist, but I think a lot of scientists really believe it. And like, well, I, I was going to get into the like CDC guidelines, but we can wait <laughs> until later. We can circle back to this like idea.
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I think it's, I, I don't think it's too early to jump into a conversation necessarily about school reopening, because I think that this is a, as you mentioned, kind of the flashpoint for how this technocratic rhetoric, and, and I do think that that is the, the appropriate term to call it too is being put to use for right is this this notion of like we have to reopen schools we have to send kids back to school and uh, and Sophie I, I particularly wanted to get your input on this one too as a as a parent who has children of school age right now as well but you Abby wrote a really good medium piece a while back in December actually that predated a lot of the arguments that were going to uh, come out in favor of reopening schools or like like to the letter almost uh, of the like the David Brooks column that came out recently. Specifically about how education privatization proponents are using the pandemic as an opportunity to kind of go in on, you know, Basically kind of weaponizing a sort of science rhetoric to advance this argument that schools need to be reopening to fight against unions, teacher unions. I was wondering if you could talk with us a little bit about what you found uh, through the process of writing that that medium article and the ways that science is kind of used in this in in a little bit. I don't even know what exactly to call it. It's kind of sneaky,
2: (laughs) but it's uh, I mean, it's certainly like who like what science are you listening to? Right. Because we know how covid is largely, we know how COVID is transmitted. And it seems to me that that science is ignored in favor of the kind of the data that you were talking about, Abby, of like, contact tracing, that's not really thorough.
1: So I think the reason that this has become such a big issue is that like schools serve a social reproductive function, in addition to like an education function. And it's even in, I believe it's like a Rockefeller Foundation document, the Rockefeller Foundation has been like, working, I think, closely with the Biden administration to try to figure out like a testing protocol to enable schools to reopen. But like, I'm sorry that I don't have the citation right in front of me, but there's this Rockefeller Foundation document that says like, no, schools need to be open so that their parents can, like these children's parents can can work, right? Like they, like these parents need to recoup their like lost productivity. And like, we need schools open to do that. And-
2: Thank you, Rockefeller.
1: Thank you, Rockefeller. <laughs> I think the reason why these a lot of foundations that support charter schools, you know, school choice, vouchers, things like that, I think they're wading into this for the same reasons as, you know, other kind of like industry groups are wading into this, which is that the cost in terms of like GDP is not worth it to them. You know, the cost of doing you know, like a real kind of pandemic response that involves, you know, something like paying people to stay home if they're not you know, workers in essential sectors.
0: Like specifically, I mean, you talked about the National COVID-19 School Response Dashboard, which is kind of this collocation of all this data into, you know, what feels like a very sort of official, uh, I guess, sort of source of information that seems to be promoting this idea that sending kids back to school is safe, right? And as you kind of expose in that Medium article, it's being bankrolled by the Walton Foundation and various other groups that have ties to whether whether implicit or explicit to school choice valence, right? So I guess, have you seen any other any other places where this is coming through? Like, like with the CDC, for example, because now they're pushing this narrative as well.
1: Yeah, so I think a lot of what's been going on, especially, you know, like with some of these data sources or initiatives that are kind of bankrolled by these foundations, is that there's like a real effort underway to manufacture certainty out of like very legitimate scientific uncertainty, right? And like I did an episode of a podcast called Death Panel with a reporter named Rachel Cohen that like we talked about this a lot, right? Like these studies that are kind of like underpinning the school reopening debate are actually not that clear, right? And actually like speak to the fact that like it is not unreasonable to be concerned about transmission risk, you know, teaching in like a building possibly that doesn't have great ventilation or anything. And I think it's one thing to honestly communicate uncertainty, and it's another to manufacture certainty out of legitimate confusion that's out there. And I think there's like, (laughs) there's like a chapter in some like Bruno Latour book where I don't even remember what this is about, but like the heading of the subsection is like, you know, when controversy erupts, debates become technical. And like, I feel like that's exactly what's happening. Absolutely. Schools, right. So like the school's question involves science, certainly, but also like real questions about like power, responsibility, accountability, and things like that. And all of those questions are just like, totally subsumed into like a lower level epistemological debate about you know like the methodology of x study or like how do we know you know this like how do we know that kids are are picking things up in school like never mind that it's like very hard to adjudicate where anyone is getting covid because like we simply don't have the infrastructure to be able to tell and i think the cdc guidelines are very interesting because they stopped short of just straight up saying like, it's not safe to have in-person instruction when community transmission is out of control. But that essentially is like what they do say. And I saw like uh, Rochelle Walensky on CNN the other night talking to Jake Tapper and he was like fear, you know, like he kept pushing her and he was like, so are you saying like that we can't that we can't do it like because of how high transmission is everywhere? And she wouldn't say yes, but like she couldn't say no because like it's it's not safe and it's very interesting that like i don't know a lot of i would say you know like educated liberals you know people that are like sort of adjacent to policymakers or moving around in these like scientific and academic spaces you know were very very excited about the biden administration and about you know like oh finally like the science, like thank God, like all we need was a president who listens to science But now like the science isn't saying like what they want it to say. And they're so pissed about it. Like they're so angry at the CDC. And like, even just today, I've been like scrolling through Twitter and seeing all these people just like, oh my God, these guidelines are just gonna make it totally impossible to reopen. And it's like, well, but it's not the guidelines. It's like the pandemic and it's like the power structure and like the failed state shit, right? That is like making it unsafe (laughs) to try to do this. Tomorrow or before the end of the of the school year, so I don't know. I feel like I've been like really all over the place.
0: No, that was a perfect answer. <laughs> like, yeah, no, I I really appreciate it. it you're you're bringing forth a knowledge that none of us would be able to provide, so this is super helpful. Thank you.
2: Yeah, and I mean, there's been a lot of evidence of, and I've seen a lot of sort of anecdotes of teachers who have returned to in person getting sick, right? I mean, does that? I, I guess I'm sort of confused by. The contact tracing data seems to omit these obvious cases and and also there seems to be something about separating how safe the kids will be from how safe the teachers will be and maybe that relates to these issues of school choice and attacking teachers unions i wonder if you have any thoughts on like the role of this kind of larger scale attack on teachers unions and public schools as part of this
1: Yeah, I think it's just another opportunity, right? Like, it's just another crisis, just another opportunity because teachers' unions are, I think, you know, my ideological commitment is that, like, I am pro union and, like, pro worker. And I think that teachers' unions have very legitimate safety concerns. And in contrast to, you know, workers in some other industries, right, like restaurant, hospitality industry workers are not organized to the same degree that teachers, public school teachers at least, are organized in the U.S. And so I think that teachers are actually, you know, they're they're right to be concerned about their occupational safety. I think they probably share occupational safety concerns with workers in a lot of other sectors, but the difference is that they actually are empowered to kind of do something about it. And... I mean, obviously, you know, school choice or charter school proponents don't like teachers unions because they are an obstacle to running schools more like businesses. I think it was always like going to become kind of a fight over workplace safety. But I think that some of these, you know, like school choice interests, like they're not that much different from other private interests, for example, like restaurant lobbies and things like that. And they have, they have a real interest and see a real upside in overriding like workers' concerns about their own safety because that like advances their agenda, right? And that like weakens and discredits teachers unions. So I think they have a real interest in like presenting the data that are out there in a certain way, right? Like they have a real interest in not engaging with some of, I think like the rather important like nuance and like limitations of the, of the data that we have and like the science that's out there. And again, yeah, of just like manufacturing this like total certainty, right? Like it's not the way that you speak to people that you respect to say like the experts say it's safe, it's safe. Like you need to go back or like California should suspend collective bargaining rights, which is like something that I have seen people argue. Like that's a headline that I saw, like that, you know, that's not the way that you treat people or workers that you view as partners, right? And I think I've said this before, but I think the conversation would be much, much, much different if it proceeded from a place of, yeah, like there's some uncertainty and there is some risk. How do we give you what you need to like mitigate this risk to a level that's like more acceptable to you or more workable? But instead, it's like, oh, you don't want to go back to work? Well, then, like, fuck you. Like, you should be fired. Who do you think you are? Restaurant workers have to go. Grocery workers have to go. Like, what's like, what's mm-hmm. so special about you? And it's like, oh, my God. Like, slow your roll. Like, teachers' unions are not the reason why bars are open. They're not. <laughs>
3: yeah. But it, like, makes this, like, convenient. Like, they're the outliers for not wanting to go back to work, but everybody else has to. It's like... The whole thing distracts from like this like larger systemic reason why we actually can't go back and it's like really frustrating to see like the teachers are absolutely not the villains here why should they want to die for this i don't want them to die for it so like it's yeah the, like the threats i totally agree i feel like they're it's like really speaks to the power dynamic of the conversation the way that workers and teachers more specifically are being spoken about Into it's like really insulting I
1: think oh yeah and I think it speaks to unfortunately a lot of scientists lack of facility with concepts of like structural political factors like equity and things like that right like because truly I mean it's like it's very en vogue right now to talk about like oh it's not individual it's not individual behaviors it's like structural it's structural factors and it's like well yes but like There are actors who control those structural factors. (laughs) There are like relationships of power that determine like what that structural landscape is like, but instead the conversation among scientists, I feel often leads to this like weird slippage where it's like, okay, well, we know that like individual based interventions aren't the right thing, but like, we actually like don't know how to think or talk about structural factors. And so instead, this is one of my personal pet peeves, like we get this tsunami of horse shit about you know how shaming is bad how moralism is just like not the right answer you know to covid and whatever and it's like yeah it's true like shaming is bad it's like not productive in a context of health or whatever but i think you know when scientists especially scientists who actually do have like power and influence over this are like repeatedly kind of diverting these bigger questions about power into these little op-eds and things like that about how, you know, like, well, we can't, we cannot shame our way out of a pandemic. And it's like, I'm sorry, like, who the fuck do you think that you're addressing with this? Like, who are you actually speaking to? Because the problem is that, like, in some cases, like, you actually have some power to, like, I don't know, close things down, like, do things differently that you're not using, and you're completely not interrogating, like, the actual power structure that is making it such that, like, A lot of people still have to go to low-wage service jobs. There's no reason for that. It's a weird kind of inversion of like the personal responsibility theory of disease. And it's like, it's like a weird, I don't know, it's like a weird variant.
2: It, It almost sounds to me like they want to use this personal responsibility is not the issue to sort of cloak very clear policy preferences for things that will hurt lots of people. But because... There's some sort of largely business driven, but also, I mean, among the public, there is a desire for schools to reopen, for example. And so this becomes a way to kind of like indulge that popular preference and belief that like it can be done safely or that. It's for the best in terms of raising productivity. And there's also a lot of talk, I guess, about mental health, like, you know, emotional health comes up in these conversations that like those issues are are more important than possible COVID transmission. And so it becomes a way to basically make a personal responsibility argument for a policy that will affect lots and lots of people tacitly or covertly.
1: Yeah, I just think that scientists and I think this is like by design, right? Like we're trained very specifically like not to think in these ways, but it was really disheartening like in the week after the inauguration, the timber of the whole conversation changed and it was like, okay, COVID's like COVID's over now. Like we're tired of it, we're like done thinking about it. And like most concerningly, there's like nothing else that can be done, right? So all of the like elite opinion that's being published in, you know, like opinion pages and things like that is completely like laser focused on these, what I think are just not very serious proposals for individual level technocratic fixes to COVID, such as everyone should get better masks. I mean, fine, that's not an objectionable thing to say, but like, I haven't been able to get uh, an N95. Like, I'm still using- Send them them to us.
3: It's ridiculous. (laughs) Like, everybody needs to wear a mask and you find them.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's like, okay, fine. Everyone needs to wear a mask. You know, we simply just should do equity in the vaccine rollout. Like, again, totally agree. But, like, where's the evidence that that's possible? Like, given, you know, the state of our public health infrastructure. Or, you know, we should- all be testing ourselves with rapid antigen tests every day. No mention of how those tests <laughs> are going to get to like every household in the country, such that like we can all engage in that responsible behavior at like a scale that will affect you know the the level of the pandemic. And I think it's quite an interesting window into like pedagog- pedagogical. I don't. I never know how to say that word. Yep. Focus public health programs. Right. That this is the kind of thing that like experts are just like putting forward over and over and over and over again and something like a paid shutdown is like not even discussed, right? Like the very idea that the government could do something big and drastic to like get COVID under control is just like totally not on the table. And like now that Biden is in charge and science is in charge, it seems like very few people care. And it's like, it's distressing that the horizon of like political possibility has constricted so dramatically so fast. And even... In the rare occasions when something like a page shutdown does come up it's only in like disparaging terms, so I saw like I I apologize that I don't remember what this is from, but I saw like a New York Times article somewhere. Talking about you know if we could just do rapid antigen testing, you know, like we could control COVID. I mean I don't I don't believe that we can do rapid antigen testing for everyone at scale, but the The paragraph that like introduced this idea was like, you know, let's let's all agree that a lockdown is the most ruinous option. And I saw this, and I remember even tweeting it. I was like, is it more ruinous than half a million people dying for the fucking economy? Like,
3: right? Like, what's the metric? It's it's so frustrating.
1: What are you talking? Yeah, yeah. It's like, it's it's like it's all rhetorical. Like, none of it is like based on science, and. I think there's like a lack of critical awareness among scientists for like where some of these things come from right and like there is a i don't know there's like a lack of like like critical ability to like critically evaluate communications and rhetoric because it's like okay no like this rhetoric actually has serious policy implications and like it's maybe not an accident that like (laughs) you know this like stuff about schools being safe, you know, got rolled out like over the summer to set the stage for this huge showdown in the fall. But there seems to be like very little awareness of like what the actual implications of these like rhetorical strategies are. And I think, I mean, that could just be like a problem with like academia in general, because I feel like academic science of the kind that I'm in, like, I think epi is really kind of like a social science, but Covid has really demonstrated how, like, divorced from material reality, a lot of like the discourse in like the, my like academic field is.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I don't think it's just your academic field either. <laughs> as you were as you were talking about scientists having this inability or unwillingness to see past a sort of. I mean, it's good that they're sort of moving away from this individualized notion of, you know, we should stop blaming social problems on the personal responsibility of individual people. But then you're faced a, because, you know, I think in the humanities, we have had a similar trajectory towards trying to take more of a, you know, what's often called a structural analysis. Right. But often that that structure is not ever really delineated to show that there is responsibility here, that there are people who have agency in uh, and, and real power in that could actually make something uh, something good happen <laughs> and you know there is a certain like there's a certain cynicism that you grow to to harbor when you start seeing the fact that you know nothing continues to change and the people in power continue to abdicate responsibility to say we can't do anything you know our hands are tied because you know we can't pass this through the budget yada yada like it's so essentially i guess the the big question that i think we wanted to land on here at the end is uh, to kind of to refocus our imaginations Let's say refocus the scope of what is or what could be politically possible, which you have been alluding to uh, this entire conversation, this notion of a paid shutdown as a as a policy solution. I think that it's something that I I know I'm interested in learning more about what this could entail, how it could be possible. And I think a lot of our listeners could really benefit from hearing a little bit more of a of like a real articulation of what that could look like. So could you tell us a little bit about what that means?
1: Yeah, sure. So I'll preface this by saying, like, I am not a politician. I'm not a policy scholar, right? Yes. Like
0: <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs>
1: coming from like a standpoint of being, you know, like a scientist, kind of maybe like a social scientist. But I think a paid shutdown could look similar to, you know, what we did in the very early days of the pandemic in the U.S., where, you know, a lot of non-essential businesses were closed and, you know, financial relief was provided both through, I believe, you know, like stimulus, quote unquote, stimulus checks, in addition to like extended unemployment insurance that made it a possible for people to survive their workplace being temporarily closed and B, you know, made it possible for people. And I think this is like one good thing that the Biden administration is doing is making people eligible for unemployment benefits if they quit their job because they're concerned about their safety. And like, I think that's great. Like, that's a great way to, I don't want to sound like like a tanky or like an authoritarian, <laughs> but like, you know, short of drastic, you know, federally coordinated action. That's like a great way to help support people in like making decisions that accord with their kind of like risk benefit calculus and like kind of enable people to keep themselves safe. So yeah, a paid shutdown, I think it would look like exactly what it sounds like, paying people at non-essential businesses to basically stay home, whether that's through state aid is kind of like a thornier question because like some governors like, are not so down with like enforcing closures of non-essential businesses, but you know, there's a lot that can be done just from the executive branch to make that possible. So yeah, I just think like figuring out ways to get financial support to like individuals and businesses and just like closing things for like a short, a short amount of time, right? And I think that's the only way that you can reliably make it possible for like people at the population level to like basically isolate themselves from other people, which is what you have to do to like break chains of transmission for COVID. So I'm sorry, like, I don't, don't, I'm not like, I'm not going to offer policy details because that's like outside my realm, but like we did it before other countries have done it, right? Like Australia, New Zealand have had like great success with this kind of strategy. And I think it's just a question, honestly, of it's a question of public health capacity a little bit. And that's like a 10, 20 year project of like rebuilding public health capacity, but it's also a question of political will, right? And like, that is like a this week question is like, do we care enough? You know, like, does the Biden administration care enough about rapidly bringing transmission down to prevent more deaths to like pull some of these levers at his disposal to try to make it possible? to close businesses because it's not about, yeah, like, like we're saying, it's not about personal responsibility. Like it is absurd to tell people, you know, to just mask and distance when they're still having to catch a fucking city bus and go to a job in a restaurant. That's bananas. And so, yeah, there needs to be some type of like centrally planned, federally coordinated effort to support people, you know, whether it's like putting them through a stimulus or through the unemployment system or something and to support businesses so that they can withstand like a temporary, a temporary closure.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. And I mean, I I, yeah, I I didn't want to put you on the spot and make you responsible for outlining a point by point (laughs) policy plan. But uh, but I but I do appreciate you at least, you know, giving us giving us a different way of looking at the problem, because I think sometimes even at at its most basic, a a shift in, you know, what we consider to be possible in politics can be very transformative. I know it was for me, you know, when I kind of started to learn a little bit more about political history and context. It's important to realize that the, the way things is not the way that things always will be or the way that they should be.
2: And it really does feel like the Biden administration is putting everything into the vaccine. Like, the vaccines are the entire strategy. And that's frustrating, even just from a partisan political point of view, because that was Trump's entire strategy. Like, Trump patted himself on the back for getting the vaccine made. And it seems like Biden has just basically said, we're going to roll that vaccine out really well. But I think one of the things that you... Abby and your co-authors in that piece point out is that the vaccine is not enough like we need to control transmission while the vaccine is rolling out or the vaccine will actually backfire or will not be as effective
3: especially since we're not going to have the vaccine most of us until the summer which is like we're talking about a full year and a half of kids being home from school. Like, I don't want them to go back right now, but I want them to go back. Like, I'm ready (laughs) for that. I've been interrupted in this podcast four different times by my children. (laughs) Like, I'm ready. Like, that's the thing. Like, it's, it's, I feel like uh, they're like holding us hostage. Like, don't you want your kids to be back in school? You want that, right? Like, yeah, I really do. But I also don't want anybody to die for it. Like, it's not fair. I would say.
1: Yeah. It's not fair. It's not fair to anyone. Right? So like, In terms of the vaccine, there's like a biological case for why this like vaccine only strategy is bad, and there's like a moral case for why it's bad, right? The biological case is that it's bad to just rely totally on the vaccine and like basically Jax's dad's advice from Vanderpump Rules, which is like (laughs) good choices, like The biological case is that, you know, that is like when transmission is as high as it is and as it has been, that is creating like a perfect kind of like experimental conditions for the virus to evolve strategies or properties that allow it to evade the immunological protection that the vaccine provides. So it's like putting some selective pressure right on the virus to like evolve things that will advantage it, right? Like to evolve immunity to the to the vaccines. But then like the moral case is that like every infection with COVID-19 and every death from COVID-19 are policy choices that have been made. And I think that was true before the vaccine was rolled out. But I think it is especially true now that we have vaccines that work really well, right? I don't know how in fuck you ask like the public to tolerate Thousands, you know, tens of thousands, possibly hundreds of thousands of additional deaths while this vaccine is being rolled out. That is mind-boggling to me, and I mean, it's it it seems pretty clear to me, you know, why that's happening. Both the Trump administration and the Biden administration clearly prioritize like economic considerations over potential, you know, loss of life, potential strain on the healthcare system, potential long-term morbidities as a result of COVID infection but I think it's astonishing. Like, I don't know how you ask someone to die for the economy while the vaccine is being like slowly, 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 slowly rolled out. But that, I mean- Or at all. That, or at yeah, all. I mean, like, or at all, right? Like it was, it was never okay, but like it's, it's in particularly sharp mm-hmm. relief now that it's like, oh my God, like they won't even tolerate four to six weeks of shutdown. Right, that's what's so frustrating. It wouldn't take that long.
3: Like, it's not like we're saying government pay for us to stay home forever, a month, that's it.
1: We could have been done with COVID yeah. by June. Yeah. We could have been done and we're not. And that's And that's a fucking choice that was made by the Trump administration. And that's an affirmative choice that is continuing to be made by the Biden administration. And it's like, it's not okay. It's fucked up and they will mobilize scientific language all day long to talk about how, well, you know, like our political reality is actually just like a natural state, right? right. Like
3: there's, <laughs> there's nothing, nothing that happens. we could do about it. The we most just have to deal with
1: it. That I think is the repeated assertion that, you know, lockdowns or any type of public health measure to control COVID transmission is really unpopular, which we actually know that it's not, those things are incredibly popular because nobody actually wants to fucking die. Like nobody actually wants to get COVID. but you know, when you hear, like you read these things and you hear these like experts and politicians talk and it's like, oh, well, you know, again, let's agree that that would be the most ruinous option. And it's like, yeah, there's like an agenda here. And the agenda is to reify the like political environment as like a natural environment that we are like only minimally empowered to act on. And it's just just a maneuver to like dodge accountability, I think. And that's not good.
2: Yeah hundred percent
0: Absolutely. Well, I want want to say, I mean, I think that we've really landed on probably one of the most provocative examples I've ever considered myself about how the rhetoric of science has real consequences for public health. I mean, we're we're living through probably the most consequential example of that in our lifetimes. We do unfortunately have to get going here, but we do want to say to Abby Cardis, thank you so much for joining us today. This was a super insightful uh, and really fruitful conversation, and we appreciate you sharing all of your uh, insights with us. Just really quickly before we sign off, we'll plug your article in The Nation, your co-authored piece in The Nation, uh, as well as that Medium article that I referenced earlier. Is there any other work that you would like to avail us to or any other place where people can go to find your uh, your work?
1: I am sometimes on Twitter as at Abby C Science. Twitter, as you might imagine, like like public health like medical like science twitter is like pretty intense right now so i tend to kind of like disappear and then reappear but you can find me there if uh
0: if they're lucky they'll catch
1: (laughs) you yeah exactly
0: (laughs) all right well from all of us at reverb we hope that you're all out there uh staying safe staying healthy isolating where proper and until next time we wish you all well talk to you later everybody Bye. bye bye
2: Our show today was produced and edited by Calvin Pollock, Alex Helberg, and Sophie Wadsack. Reverb's co-producer is Ben Williams. You can subscribe to Reverb and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Android, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Check out our website at www.reverbcast.com, you can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter where our handle is at ReverbCast. That's R-E-V-E-R-B underscore C-A-S-T. Thanks for listening.